0: And we're looking at this in this Advent season at different aspects of who Jesus is, king, holy, and so on. Today, we're looking at this reality that Jesus is a Savior. He is the Savior. And we're just going to feast on that. Today is that okay? Um, I, Christmas is a time of feasting, is it not? Um, I think, if we're honest, sometimes we would say it's a time of excess. Uh, but uh, let's let's go with the positive take on that. It's a time of feasting, uh, a season of abundance. Uh, And we probably share more food and drink in this time, watch more TV, spend more time together, play more games and so on, enjoy more gifts and so on and so on than other times of the year. So to prepare for that, we are going to feast today on a bunch of scriptures. We've got a lot of Bible, I'm glad it's my son who's on the words today because I gave him about four pages of scripture references to to flash up there. So Jacob, keep up now, okay? Uh, Or or, or we'll talk about it later, okay? Um, So, um, you know, feel free, the the, the scripture, the main ones are going to come up on the, the screen just now. But as we think about Jesus, our Savior, it's one of these words that maybe we say a lot, but actually, what does it mean? And I'm going to try and take us through most of the verses in the New Testament that have to do with Savior or that Jesus saves and so on. And that's what we're going to look at today. Who is this Savior and what does that mean for us? So the first thing is this, that this Savior is God. He is God. So one of the things that Mary and Joseph didn't have to worry about, like many new parents do, is trying to figure out a name for their baby. I don't know if any of you have near-miss stories from your family. Um, I I, I need to be careful here because there's a chance that someone's called these names, but I had a couple of near-miss stories. So I was actually going to be known as, uh, I was going to be called Colum, not Gollum. uh, That's different, but Colum, I think it's an Irish name, is that right? Uh, Colin Dennis is nothing that makes. So, uh, or, or I was going to be Marcus. Now, if you're a Colin or a Marcus, we love you. There's nothing wrong But those names. But, uh, but for, for me, my, my brother and sister um, managed to convince, they're a good bit older than me, they managed to convince my mom and dad to call me Martin on one condition that the T would always be pronounced correctly. I'm not sure if they managed to, to pull that off. It was Martin. Uh, I, I did grow up in Dundee after all. But anyway, Mary and Joseph did not have to worry about what, this baby was going to be called. Uh, Mary had been told by the angel Gabriel to call this baby by the name Jesus. Now, she would have known what that name Jesus meant. It's a different version of the Hebrew name Joshua, the root of which means the Lord is salvation. That is to say, the Lord is the one who saves. Now Joseph was told this explicitly in Matthew chapter 1. He was told by the angel, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So in Luke chapter 1, in Mary's great song of praise, she begins by saying, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, okay? And here we get this first little glimpse into who this Savior is, God, my Savior. This is the first use of this word Savior in the New Testament. And straight away, it's made known to us, this Savior is no ordinary person. He is God, the same God who is the firstborn of all creation, The Alpha and the Omega, the one who created this world, is the one who comes to save this world. The one who created you is the God who can save you. He's God. Next thing we find out is that he was long promised. Now, I've got all these scriptures written here. If you, see me, if you don't see me turn into my Bible, it's because I've got them all here. This is just, I, I, I like to have this here as a reminder that this is God's word we're talking about, not my word, okay? So this is God's word that we're looking at, but I've got them all printed out here. In Acts chapter 13, Paul is preaching in Antioch, and he does as the apostles often do in their sermons, and he tells the story of Israel He tells them how God lifted them out of Egypt, and uh, quoting from verse 18, it says how for about 40 years God put up with them, it says in the scriptures, in the wilderness. And in verse 20, it mentions another period of time, 450 years, and then he speaks about the time of the judges and how God's people then asked for a king. And when he mentions David, he says in verse 23, of this man's offspring... God has brought to Israel a savior Jesus as he promised. He was long promised this savior. Ian read for us from Isaiah chapter 40, I forget. It was like 45. It was Isaiah anyway. And uh, we've been reading many of these Old Testament passages this Advent, the season which points which reminds us that God's people were looking for, waiting for this coming Messiah. That's what Advent's about, the sense of waiting that God's people were in. And and Jesus was this long-promised rescuer, Savior of God. God's people had waited for him for hundreds of years. And we sit, friends, what a privilege, what a gift. We sit on the other side of his coming. God was faithful in his promise in sending the Savior. So, Who is this? He's God. He's long promised Savior. Next question I want us to look at is what did he do? What did the Savior do? Well, first of all, he came to save us from the punishment for sin. How we need this Savior. Again, we've just been reflecting on this so helpfully this morning. This world that he created is so far from how God designed and desired for it to be, is it not? Full of evil, injustice, turmoil. And all of these things are most fundamentally, not just abstract random happenings, but they're rooted somewhere. They're rooted in our abandonment of God, our rejection of this wonderful God and His ways who only desires good for us. But God does not leave sin and evil undealt with. Romans 1 verse 18 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. There is judgment for sin. That's hard sometimes for us to hear, but it's also good news for us to reflect on. Think of some of what has been done to you by other people, or to your family members, or to the most vulnerable around the world. Think of the acts of evil that are happening even now as we meet in various parts of this planet And think not only of what is happening, what has happened to you or is happening to others, but but think also of how we have treated others, how we have acted towards others, and most crucially, towards God. The wrath of God will not just leave these things by the side. The wrath of God has and will come. So the wrath of God has come, upon Jesus on the cross of Calvary, and it will come again on the final day of judgment to any who think they can stand alone against this God. How we need a Savior. I know I do. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved? Saved by him from the wrath of God. This Savior came to enable us to stand strong, Against the wrath of God, not in our own strength, but in his victory. We need not fear. Whatever you've done, whatever this week has looked like, no matter your failures, no matter how cold your heart is or has been towards God, Jesus has come that you might be saved from the wrath of God. And he did this, friends, next point, by abolishing Death. Second Timothy, verse one, verse ten, speaks of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And I just have to say that carefully: it's life and immortality, not life and immorality, as I once said in a stumble at one point. I forget the when that was, but thankfully, I think someone corrected me. Jesus didn't. He. he got rid of immorality. He brought life and immortality to light. He abolished death, our greatest enemy, right? Our common foe. He has dealt with it, and he has instead, he's abolished death, he's brought light, life sorry, and immortality to light. I love the way the New Living Translation puts it. Jesus has illuminated the way to life, and immortality. Or the way uh, Peterson puts it in the message, he says, death defeated, life vindicated in a steady blaze of light all through the work of Jesus, our Savior. It's why this theme of light is so powerful at this time of year. Light that shines in the darkness, no matter how dark, it cannot consume the light of Jesus Christ. He's bringing life to light, eternal life, light. And here's the next question. Who did Jesus do all this for? This incredible work, saving work for the good people, the clever people, the religious people, the impressive people, the confident people, the people with all the answers, those who seem together and at peace? No, he came for those people, yes, but he came for the lost. He came The lost. Jesus himself said it reflecting on how God worked in the life of Zacchaeus, who was a cheat, a criminal, a thief. He said of himself in Luke 19, verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is our Savior, to seek and to save the lost. Do you ever feel lost? We all at times end up, don't we, feeling lonely, hidden from God, hidden from the love and care of others. We wander away from the path that God has for us, from that place of safety and abundance, that place of home with God and peace with God. We, we wander, we, we get lost in this world. Jesus, the Savior, came for you, if you can relate to that. Paul puts it even more starkly, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 to 17, listen to this. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent... But those who have actively rejected God, sinners of whom I am the foremost, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of ages. I love how Paul just sometimes just begins to overflow and bubble up this lovely praise and adoration. He speaks of the truth of who God is, and then he says, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. amen. Amen. Amen? Amen. That middle verse there is just so wonderfully clear, isn't it? Who did Jesus come for? He came to save, say it, sinners. He came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I mean, that's the tone here, right? That Paul's getting at. Me more than anyone. I, I know me. I know the mess that I am. I'm the foremost. I'm, 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 I'm number one of all the sinners that I can think of. And he was so aware of how far he was from the person God made him to be that the saving work of Jesus was so sweet to him. This should be how not just us as individuals respond to Jesus, but moving on to the next point now, this should be how the whole world responds to Jesus because he came not just for the lost Few lost people, not just for a few people who recognize that they're sinners, but Jesus came for the whole world, whole world. John 3, 16 and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. His saving works not just for a few. It's for the world, that the world might be saved. And in the next chapter, in John chapter 4, we've looked at this recently as we've gone through John, the people in the town of Samaria who encountered Jesus, they, they, they say, we have heard for ourselves, and we now know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Listen to how Paul puts it in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He describes God as our Savior who desires all peoples to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And again, I just love how crystal clear that is. Yes, there are parts of the Bible that are hard, but there are also some verses that are so clear. Yes, there is judgment for sin, but that is not the heart of God towards His creation. His desire is that all people Including every single person in this room, every single person that might come eventually to watch this message online, every single person would be saved. That's the desire of God. That's the desire for your friends and family this Advent season. Next question How does this happen? This saving work, not just for the, a few lost, a few sinners, but for the whole world. Anyone who would recognize those things, how does it happen? Well, it starts with his grace. It's all about his grace. Ephesians 2, may, I told you we were going to be jumping around a lot of scriptures in the New Testament today. Ephesians 2 makes clear our need of God. That we in ourselves are dead in our trespasses and sins. Spiritually cut off from the source of life. Spiritually gone. Spiritually dead. But God one of those lovely little phrases which is about to come up in Ephesians 2, but God did not leave it that way. Ephesians 2, 4, 5, but God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, with Christ by grace you have been saved. This is the work. This is how it happens. By grace, you have been saved. And in case we didn't get it, a few verses later, Paul underlines it again. Verses 8 to 9. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that anyone may boast. He just, again and again, just wants to be clear. It's not about you. It's not about how impressive you are. It's all gift. It's all kindness. It's all grace. And... Uh, And it's because... Of the work of Jesus Christ. So another passage, Titus chapter 3. Is this okay? All these scripture verses? You guys, you guys happy with that? Titus chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. Listen to this. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus. Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's all about what Jesus has done. We are helpless in ourselves. And this is where that typical image that we might think of, if you think of an image of what does it mean to respond to or have the help of a Savior... In day-to-day life. This is where that image, where whether it's someone being pulled from the water who's drowning, or whether it's someone being rescued from a, a building which is on fire, or whether it's someone who's receiving emergency medical care. That's where these pictures are so powerful, so moving, because there's helplessness in that place. There's helplessness unless a rescuer comes, unless there is a savior. And that is so Freeing, and humbling, and amazing to remember today that it's what Jesus has done that matters for us. It's His saving work is grace, gift, mercy, rescue, salvation. So, what do we do with all of that? We've looked at who this Savior is, what He's done, who He came for, how He saves us. The question is this: How then? will we respond? And again, just so much encouragement here because friends, we just come with simple faith. Acts 2, 21, quoting the prophet Joel, Peter is preaching and he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So just now, even in the quiet, even in this space, call on the name of Jesus I know some of you did that decades ago and have walked with him, but again, I invite you, or for the first time, call on the name of Jesus this morning. He's here by his spirit. It's his work to call on Jesus. Listen to what Paul and Silas said to the Philippian jailer who feared for his life, Acts 16, 30. He says, then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? I'm drowning. I need a rescuer. I need help. And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Call on the name of Jesus. Believe in the person and the work of Jesus. And Romans 10 puts these two together. And it says in Romans 10, verse 9 if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, So speak it out and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved, rescued. And this time we have a little mini sermon uh, from Peter. We heard one of Paul's earlier sermons in Antioch. This time it's Peter in Acts 5, 31. Listen to what he said. God exalted Jesus at his right hand as leader I love that. I missed that, by the way, until this week. I'd never spotted that before. But God exalted Jesus at his right hand as leader and savior. Why? So that Jesus would give by the power of the Holy Spirit to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. As we believe in Work of Jesus as we call on the name of Jesus. That is us turning away from our own paths, our own ways, and turning towards Jesus. And in that, through faith in Jesus, we are united through the work of the Holy Spirit, united to the person of Jesus, and His life is ours, and His righteousness is ours. And in time, His ways become ours because the next mark along this little journey of salvation is that we are changed to become like. Jesus. One of the things that's helpful for us to remember when we think about salvation is that there is a sense in which is past, present, and future. We have been saved based on the historical reality of what Jesus Christ has done. We are being saved. The Holy Spirit is here today changing us to be more like Jesus, and one day we will fully finally be saved in a settled sense. Well, not settled, but in an eternal sense, forevermore. Um, And in the meantime, we're in this in-between time and we're being changed to be more like Jesus. Listen, 2 Peter 3 verse 18, we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. It's not just Paul who overflows in praise, apparently Peter as well. 2 Timothy 1 verse 9, Paul speaks of God who saved us. Not as the end of the story, but listen, it goes on. God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. It's all Jesus' work, it's his grace, it's his purpose. It's his work in our lives, but as we receive that, as we embrace his rescue, our lives are forever changed, and increasingly, Second Corinthians 4, from one degree of glory to another, increasingly we are changed to be aligned to Jesus' holy calling, not to earn his salvation, but as a response for all that he has done for us. And that's such a crucial distinction, right? Many of you will have seen the film Saving Private Ryan. Don't worry, I'm not going to show the, like, the opening scene from that. That wouldn't be very encouraging on a, on a Sunday morning. Um, but there's an incredible scene towards the end of the film. The story is, if you don't know it, it's, it's not a true story, but it's a powerful story. James Ryan is a paratrooper who's been lost behind enemy lines and eight soldiers are sent to find him because he's the last of, I think, five brothers, all of whom uh, the others have died, and and he's the last one. So eight soldiers are sent to find him to bring him home. And at great cost, through terrible turmoil and with lives lost in their search, he is eventually found and rescued. And there's a, a very powerful scene towards the end of the movie where Captain Miller, played by Tom Hanks, who's terribly injured in this rescue mission. And uh, he's whispering what maybe, I don't want to give it away, maybe his last words. You have to watch for yourself. Um, And he's whispering to Private Ryan and he pulls him close and through pain says these words and he can't hear him. He has to repeat it. And then he says these words, earn this, earn this. All this effort and pain that resulted from this rescue of Private Ryan, earn this, this captain says to him in these horrific moments. He's he's saying, prove yourself worthy of all this effort and sacrifice. Now, I don't know what you make of that. I don't think Steven Spielberg intended them to be seen like this, but for me, those are brutal final words to say to someone after a rescue like this. Potentially final words. Some of you caught that. Um, Those are words which would weigh you down every single day, would they not? I've got to live this life in such a way as to show that I have earned what someone did for me, that I am worthy of the sacrifice that people made for me. Brutal, hard words to hold on to. And in fact, the next scene in the movie confirms this. An elderly James Ryan is in front of Captain Miller's grave. He could have died at any point, guys. He could have died. And he's clearly troubled by these words that he heard many decades earlier. He's he's saying, and he says in the movie that he's thought of those words every single day. And his wife draws near and he almost begs her to reassure him that he's been a good man, that he's lived a good life, he's carried the weight of those words his entire life. Earn this Now, as Christians, there are so many points of connection with this movie. We live in light of someone's sacrifice, not the sacrifice of a soldier on a battlefield, but the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Son of God nailed to a cross. This is foundational to everything that we do and everything that we are, but it's so different from that focus at the end of Saving Private Ryan. Jesus' last words were not, earn this. Jesus last words were father forgive them forgive them mercy they don't know what they're doing he died to save us from our rejection of him forgive us and we live friends in light of that sacrifice this rescue from our savior not to we're not to match up not to earn it we could never earn that infinitely precious gift that Jesus has offered for us, but we are to live in light of Jesus' sacrifice, to so love and cherish and soak in his grace and love that we can't help but reflect it to those around about us. Now, as we close, I just want to acknowledge that this isn't easy for us, to embrace this God, to embrace what he has done for us in offering himself as a savior, for our lives to be aligned with who he is and what he is all about. And this is where I have to say, I think this season of Advent can be such a blessing because it's this season of waiting for this coming Messiah. Yes, the one who's come. Yes, the one who's here now by his spirit. Yes, the one who's coming again. And, and, and we're waiting. And that, that posture is so helpful, I think, as we struggle with faith, as I think we all do at various points. Listen to Romans 8. The whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies For in this hope, we are saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Some of you, I just want to encourage you, if you're feeling distant from God, if you're feeling cold, if you're finding it hard to find the joy of the life that is yours through Jesus, the Savior, just don't worry. Don't worry. God is here. God has you. We're resting in his finished work, right? And and we just we're might be in a season of waiting, maybe just now. Listen to Hebrews 9, verse 28. Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Is that you this morning? Is that me? Not enough. Eagerly waiting for him. Flip... Philippians 3 verse 20, 20, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're waiting. We're in this in-between time. And in that time we can have doubts. And I wasn't sure whether I should read this, but Ian's prayer just before I came up where he mentioned the doubts that we might have has just encouraged me to to go ahead and and to read from this uh, little book just now, Um, as we have a chance now to reflect on God's Word, who this Savior is, what His work did, how He did His work, how He offers us salvation, how our lives are to come into alignment with what God is about, and acknowledging that we're in this season of waiting. We can find peace in this season of doubting, this is a, a little book which uh, someone recommended to me um, called Every Moment Holy. And it's a, fascin- a fascinating little um, liturgy help. And let me just give you a little example of uh, some of the things. Um, it, it offers you liturgies for domestic days, for laundering, for the preparation of a meal, for the hurried preparation of a meal. <laughs> for waiters and waitresses, for medical providers. Um, it offers liturgies of creation and recreation for leaving on holiday, for the watching of storms, for the first snow, and so on and so forth. It's beautiful, the m- many varied different opportunities that we have to reflect on God's presence with us just now. I would just like to read to us as, a, as we respond now. I mean, the band can come up, um, but this is just going to take a, a moment, and it's just our prayer of response, and we will sing... But um, this is called A Liturgy for Nights and Days of Doubt. And I'd like to just invite you, um, in this season of waiting, as we eagerly wait for this Savior, Jesus, I'd invite you just to close your eyes, and, and we can use these words as a prayer to our God. I would that my heart was ever strong, O Lord, my faith always firm and unwavering, my thoughts unclouded, my devotion sincere, my vision clear. I would that I dwelt always in that state wherein my belief, my hope, my confidence were rooted and certain. I would that I could remain in those seasons when assailing storms seem only to make faith stronger, proving your presence, your providence. But it is not always so. There are those other moments as now when I cannot sense you near, cannot hear you, see you, touch you. Times when fear or depression or frustration overwhelm and I find no help or consolation when the seawalls of my faith crumble and give way to inrushing tides of doubt. Have I believed in vain? Are your words true? They seem so distant to me now. Is your presence real? I cannot feel it. Do you love me or are you indifferent to my grief? Under weight of such darkness, how can I remember the sunlight of your love as anything more than a child's dream? Under weight of such doubt, how can I still proclaim to my own heart with certainty that you are real? And so Jesus, I do now the only thing I know to do Here I drag my heavy heart again into this cleared and desolate space to see if you will meet me in my place of doubt, even as you mercifully met your servant Thomas in his uncertainty, even as you once acted in compassionate response to a fearful father who desperately pleaded, I believe, Lord, help me with my unbelief. For where else but to you might I flee with my doubts? You alone have the words of eternal life. This I know to be true, my Lord, my God, You are not in the least angered by my doubts and my questions, for they have often been the very things that lead me to press closer into you, seeking the comfort of your presence, seeking to understand the roots of my own confusion. So also use these present doubts for your purposes, O Lord. I offer them to you, even as the patriarch Job made of his pain and confusion a petition Even as the psalmists again and again carried their cries, their questions, their laments to you, so would I be driven by my doubts to despair of my own strength and knowledge and righteousness and control, and instead to seek your face, knowing that when I plead for proof, what I most need is your presence. In your presence, I can offer my questions, knowing you're never threatened by my uncertainties. They do not change your truth. My doubts cannot unseat your promises. You are a rock, O Christ, and your truth is a bulwark that I might dash myself against until my strength is spent and I collapse at last in despair. Only then to feel the tenderness of your embrace as you stoop to gather me to yourself, drawing me to your breast and cradling me there, where I find I am held again by a love that even my doubts cannot undo. O Lord, how many times have you graciously led me through doubt into a deeper faith? Do so again, my Lord and my God. Even now, do so again. You alone are strong enough to carry the weight of my troubled thoughts. Even as you alone are strong enough to bear the burden of my sin and my guilt and my shame, my wounds and my brokenness. O Christ, let my doubts never compel me to hide my heart from you. Let them rather arise as questions to begin holy conversations. Invert these doubts, turning them to invitations to be present, to, on, to be honest, to seek you, to cry out to you, to bring my heart fully into the struggle rather than to seek to numb it. Let my doubts become invitations to wrestle with you through such dark nights of the soul as Jacob wrestled with the angel until the day breaks anew and I am fresh, wounded by your love and resting in the blessing of peace again in your presence. Now, O oh Lord, may the end result of my doubt be a more precious and hard rung faith, resilient as the Methuselah tree and a hope more present and evergreen and a more tender and active mercy extended to others in their own seasons of doubting. So help me, my Lord and my God. I have no consolation but you. Meet me now in this eclipse shadow of my doubt. Lead me again into your light. Amen. Lord, we thank you, Jesus, that you are our Savior, the light of the world. Thank you for all that you have done for us. And thank you for the invitation that you bring to us to believe, to call on your name. And to know your salvation. Help us in this season of Advent. This time of waiting. To eagerly await a savior. To eagerly await Jesus. And to call again even today. On your name. We do that now. As we respond to you in worship in Jesus name. Amen.